0: Well, good morning, friends. We're going to continue in our worship now by turning to 1 Kings chapter 17. And I invite you to turn there in your Bibles if you have that. Also, there are Bibles available in the seats in front of you under those. You grab one of those and turn to 1 Kings chapter 17. It is a good day indeed. And it's good to remember in the month of November. How good and unfailing our God is. Today's message is called Our Unfailing Provider. Our unfailing provider. And it's a good thing to meditate on God, our unfailing provider, especially as we continue to get headlines and news about the difficulties that we tend to face. Just this week, for example, in the November 19th edition of World Magazine, I read about severe drought conditions to our west in Memphis. The article says this, when the Mississippi River reached record low levels in Memphis last month, it left barges stuck on sandbars and boats stuck in the mud. At adjacent Lake McKellar, a casino riverboat that sank last year, praise the Lord, became visible from hull to mast. But the biggest problem is how two months of drought along the Mississippi River Basin have disrupted critical transportation of crops like soybeans and corn. More than half of all U.S. grain exports depend on the Mississippi, and industry experts estimate the drought has reduced the flow of harvested goods by about 45%. Storage at barge terminals in some areas filled up and the added cost for farmers led many to wait to ship their harvests. Meanwhile, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers kept busy dredging the river at integral points to maintain a depth of at least nine feet. The shipping holdup is expected to raise consumer food prices even further. So just like Pastor Sam started his message with some bad news last week by acknowledging that even though we are preaching about generosity this month, as we often or always do in November, we still face inflation and recession and difficulties that hit us at places like the grocery store and the gas pump and bills any that we travel. So it may seem rather pretentious or ill-timed to bring up issues of generosity when we're all feeling a bit of a crunch right now. And when the news continues to report things like this, that the river, the source that we depend on for still after all these decades and centuries for so much of our goods is drying up because of a drought condition. But I I would say that just like we learned last week, we need to learn again that during difficult times, our God has not changed. That although sometimes the rains don't fall, God is not limited in what he can do even in a time of drought. And we will see in 1 Kings chapter 17 today a grand theme that the living God never fails to provide for his people. And his people must trust him. Our God, the living God, never fails to provide for his people. But on the other side of that, his people must trust him. Whether it is in extremity or in plenty, our God does not change. And I would draw your attention to learn about this God, our unfailing provider, in two key points today. And we're going to do something unique. There will be a video testimony about six minutes long towards the end of my message after which I'll come back up and conclude with one final thought. But we're gonna look at the the story that starts out by introducing Elijah in in 1 Kings chapter 17. Let me read the first verse. It says, 1 Kings chapter 17, verse one. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead Said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Here is the dramatic entrance of this man named Elijah, about whom we know very, very little at this point in the book of First Kings. But I want to talk to you this morning, at the beginning here, about a key aspect of what was happening in this story, that this first verse plunges us right into the middle of, but the context begs for us to understand better. In Israel at this time was a battle for the preeminence of God. And in the first point this morning, we need to focus on The preeminence of God and what Elijah had come onto the scene to reveal. Now, the context, strange to say, for this story is the death of Yahweh in Israel. Now, we will come to find out that reports of his death are highly exaggerated because when Elijah comes on the scene, he points out the opposite of what nearly everybody in Israel was saying at the time. And in order to get some of this context, first you need to know that by 1 Kings 17, it's been about 58 years since the death of Solomon. The kingdom was split upon Solomon's death. The northern kingdoms, the 10 tribes, formed their own kingdom with a capital in Samaria. The first king was a guy that was known as Jeroboam, and he sinned against the Lord. And from that time, things just got worse until you get to 1 Kings 17 and we're introduced to the king Ahab. Let me give you a little more information about him. In 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 30 to 34, look back just a few verses and you could see what he did and just how bad he was and why the rumor of the death of Yahweh was floating around Israel. It says in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30, and Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshiped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hael of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn and set up its gates as the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. I said that this was the rumors of the death of Yahweh in Israel. And this text tells us the things that Ahab was responsible for doing that spread that rumor around. In the first place, Ahab, it says, if it was not Significant enough that he was walking in the sins of Jeroboam, who put up altars of golden cows all around the northern tribes so that people could go to those cows and worship. If that wasn't bad enough, it says that Ahab married Jezebel. Jezebel came from a family who was deeply steeped in the worship of Baal. Baal is mentioned at the beginning. Of this story here in 1 Kings 16. And the the, the deity of Baal was worshiped all over the, the region above Israel, all around them. And the Mediterranean Sea that Sidon was poised right beside carried the worship of Baal far and away and brought back all manners of perversity to add to the worship of Baal. When it says that, Ahab married Jezebel. He married into a political relationship and one of lust that would give him what he wanted, but position him in a station of power, in his thinking, over the known world. What does a king need? Well, in addition to a progeny to continue your line, he also needs rain to fall so the crops can grow, so people can eat so that they can have children and his kingdom can get bigger. Baal was supposedly the god of the storm. And with his magical hammer, I don't know if this is where the idea of Thor comes from, he could summon rain and storms to shower the lands of those who were faithful to him. So in Ahab's wicked thinking, by taking in Jezebel, and her worship of Baal, he was stocking up the security that would come with a steady harvest and rainfall. And by taking on Asherah, who was said to be in the spiritual realm, the consort or female deity that always served Baal, he figured that the fertility around his country would be secure with both rainfall now and fertility guaranteed he could go forward and be the best king that Israel ever had. Ironically, there is still evidence, as you you read the story, that Ahab still had some recognition and respect for Yahweh, but as he brought in Baal, even kicking out the priests of the temple of God in Samaria and putting in place a temple to Baal and an altar of Baal, all the thoughts of God were pushed out, and if it was even possible for the people to believe that God was dead, then that's the message that was said. Jezebel herself would have been quite the herald of this news. For her, she saw Yahweh and the worship of Yahweh as backwards, as culturally insignificant, as culturally offensive, But if you bring in the other gods to bring your success, then you're positioned to have the true God. But into that situation, Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, walked. One day, Elijah came on the scene, and we don't know, as I said, much about him. We read that he is a Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead. Gilead was the hill country of Israel. It was a really rough place to eke out a living. People there herded sheep in the mountains. Um, And if you live in the mountains, in the hill country, you can't depend on the flatlands to grow your crops. There was a lot of hard work that they had to do to grow the minimal amount of crops that they could actually get. We learn later that Elijah was a guy who wore rough camel hair garments. And he mysteriously comes on the scene and appears in the throne room of Ahab. And his name is perhaps the most significant thing about him. Elijah means, my God is Yahweh. My God is Yahweh. And that will be the very issue that Elijah raises when he challenges Ahab, the king, in his throne room. His question to Ahab in essence will be, who is your God? Who is your God? And what can he do? This will culminate, as you may know, the story of Elijah when he is on the top of Mount Carmel and he challenges the priests of Baal to a final showdown. And after much agonizing over their inability to make any Fire come down to consume an altar. The priests of Baal, after having cut themselves in insignificant actions that they do, Elijah just makes fun of them until they learn ultimately who the Lord in Israel is. But Elijah begins by declaring it that the Lord is God. And so the contest begins Yahweh versus Baal. Elijah said, the word of the Lord, and these are the things that he told Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. There are several things that you can note about the identity of Yahweh, Elijah's God. He is the God of Israel. Right? He, he does not sleep. He has not taken a vacation. He is not dead. He is very much alive. And this is how God works. We may be lulled into complacency, thinking that things will always continue as they always have been. Or that when difficulties come, they come in cycles, but we think very little about the God who is behind it all. He is silent, but he is not Powerless. He is quiet, but he is certain in his work in the lives of people. And he is angry at the sin of Ahab and Jezebel. And he says to them that God lives, that he is not dead, and furthermore, that Elijah stands before this God. And this is a, a meaning that goes back to his call ultimately as a prophet. The, The test will come whether or not this prophet, Elijah's word, has any power at all. And as you read his story, you will see his power affirmed again and again. But he declares openly to the king, my ministry is to hear from the Lord and to commune with him, to experience his rule and to respond to him. Therefore, as I have talked with the Lord, and we know this from James 5, where James says that Elijah... It's just a man like us, but he prayed fervently that it would not rain, and it didn't rain for a period of three and a half years. So by the time he's standing before Ahab, Elijah has prayed. He's seen the wickedness of Israel. He's burdened with God's heart for Israel, and he goes and declares that there will be no dew or rain until Elijah speaks to open up the heavens once again. So this is the contest that God begins. But then an unusual thing happens because Elijah then is pulled away from the throne room of Ahab. Before we go on, I want to give you one personal application to challenge you at this point, And that is this, prioritize the Lord. Prioritize the Lord. When we think about our options to help us avoid flood or famine, to ensure that our lives amount to something and that we have security, often we go to the things that we can do in order to make life work, and that everything in this life for our well being and our continuation depends on us. We don't experience the depravity and the deprivation that comes in times of famine. We don't experience that often enough to truly, I think, feel the depths of our dependence on God. But one of the ways that we can begin to grow in this area is to prioritize, like Jesus did, the Lord's prayer. The Lord prayed in Matthew chapter six, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, you might note that Jesus does not begin with, deliver us from evil, God, get us out of this trouble, or God, please give me my food today. No, Jesus begins with the instruction of how we ought to orient our lives to prioritize the Lord. We don't begin with our needs. God is aware of our needs. He wants us to ask him to supply those needs. But we get off in our journey of faith under the Lord's direction and sovereignty when we do not begin with him. And my encouragement to you this morning is to remember that when we read about Elijah, he was a guy like us. He didn't have a a special gift of faith and we could just kind of put him on a pedestal. He was like you and he was like me, but he prayed and he prioritized the glory of the Lord. And he knew him to be preeminent, even when the culture around him denied God. He knew God was the living God. Is this your hope today? Who is your God? What can your God do? Well, we learn from this time that the provision of God sets Elijah up to be sustained during a very difficult season. When there's no rain, the land suffers The the creek beds and the rivers dry up, like what we're experiencing over in Memphis right now. And so, what does God do in those times of extreme need? Well, let's look at the provision of God and how it comes to Elijah and later on to a widow. First of all, I want us to see that God's provision comes first as a word and promise a word and promise. Look again at 1 Kings 17, verse two says, "'And the word of the Lord came to him, Elijah, "'Depart from here and turn eastward "'and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, "'which is east of the Jordan. "'You shall drink from the brook, "'and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there.'" Verse five goes on to say, "'So he went and did according to the word of the Lord.'" It's interesting that the Lord told Elijah right after he appeared to Ahab to go and hide himself. Now, sometimes people think when they read this that it has to do with God's protection of Elijah because by this point, Ahab would be pretty mad at Elijah. But I think that the text itself and the word itself gives us a clue about what's happening here and it's beyond simply just hiding away from danger. The word hide, it really has the idea of absent. And God is essentially giving him a command, absent yourself from this country, this region. Why would God do that? It's often the case that when the kingdoms that God initiated would not submit to him, would not obey him, that the word that they did have, God would then take away. The word that was spoken by Elijah was the one word of warning, and I want you to understand, friends, that inherent in the warnings of God is the opportunity to repent. Amen. That's true. When God gives us warnings, we're not to run for the hills and try to escape him, or we're not to put our heads down and pretend we didn't hear it. When God warns us in his word, the only proper and safe response is to stop doing what it is that God tells us not to do and ask him for grace to change, right? Ahab did not do that. And I think the reality is Ahab didn't care about Elijah, so he let Elijah go. Elijah, in the meantime, got to experience something about living not only by bread, but also by God's word, so you notice that a word comes to Elijah, and that word is, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. Uh, a lot of people debate where exactly this brook Cherith is, but it is likely close to the hill country where Elijah grew up, somewhere in the area of Gilead. It's interesting that a brook is not a river, right? A brook is a smaller body of water, usually trickles from the highlands and water comes down. And it's sometimes known as a wadi in in the Middle East. The people depend on the water that goes through these canyon-like wadis in order to live. But they depend on it for a season because they know it's going to go away. God directs Elijah to a place that he could be familiar with, but that wouldn't ultimately last forever unless God willed that to happen. So he goes, and the command was really strange. It's really interesting how God said he would feed him, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But this is what I I want to focus on before we go any further, and it's this provision of God. God is so committed to us as his followers that we would know him and submit to him, our preeminent God, that he will even wean you and me away from security in his gifts, so we can worship and know by experience the giver. Why is it that God didn't just give Elijah a hidden cave full of food somewhere? Why didn't he call my patriot supply and get his food shipped (laughs) for three months to 20 years? because his heart was instead dependent on the Lord. I know I'm being facetious, but I want you to think about the reality of what, where we are. There comes a time when our preparations run out. There comes a time when we just can't be ready for what God might want to do. And God has no problem weaning us away from our security in his gifts in order that we may know him through worship and that we might experience him, the giver. Friends, I wanna challenge myself with that today and challenge you, that we need to prioritize the giver because his heart is to communicate himself to us and so that we would be positioned under him so that we could receive from him whatever he seems and deems as best. Well, Elijah did get daily bread and it was in an unusual way. It was through ravens. Ravens came and they gave Elijah food every morning and every evening. The interesting thing is in all of Israel, typically, not even in famine time, the people in this time period would only have meat about once a day and that was at night. Elijah gets meat twice a day, in the morning and in the evening. Now ravens were unclean birds. By God's law, you were not to eat them, but God is going to show a- Elijah here that he controls all things, even scavengers and birds of prey. You know, I-, I thought that I was seeing ravens around my yard, but then I did a little research the difference between a raven and a crow. This is for free. Um, crows are a little smaller. Ravens have like a larger beak. Crows caw and ravens croak. Crows hang out in groups and ravens usually just have a buddy, all right? So I can imagine these birds going against their nature by taking food from far off places and flying out into this wilderness area to feed Elijah in his time of need. It would have been quite a sight to see, but the the thing about God's providence here and his provision, if a dog had done that, You know, I think of man's best friend. Wouldn't that have been for me a little bit? Well, I don't know if I want it in their mouth, but you know, here's the thing. By the ravens going and doing that, God was ensuring that people who were hungry in famine times would not have followed those animals to either see their source or to either find out where they took it. A raven can get away a lot faster. And I think that God in his sovereignty was fully aware of the best way to care for his servant, even using unclean birds, that God was in control of them and could yield, make them yield to his will. The brook was his main water source. And I think that what we learn from this is that a brook, although very refreshing, is not reliable. And this is something we should know about God. Once you have experienced the generosity of God and the provision of God, you shouldn't count on him to do everything exactly the same every time. When something dries up, you can count that God has other plans in store. Often, I think we're tempted that when we face need, we tend to conclude that God must either be angry with us or that God must not like us Or that we've done something to separate ourselves from God. Now there's the possibility that we get away from God and we grieve him. But I know this. Our God does not base his provision for his people on their perfection. And he is looking for us to yield to him. And he's looking for us to acknowledge when we sin. But no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. And how do any of us walk uprightly who know the Son, Jesus Christ? It's by his merits and his righteousness. So if you think that you ever can earn anything from God, this is a time in the Bible that teaches us we cannot. God provides, and he responds to faith. If you are in need, trust God. Come to him. I think of George Mueller. He was well-known in the 19th century for opening up many orphanages. And you've perhaps heard this story how one morning when he got up, there was no food for the orphans. The plates and cups and bowls were all empty. The children were standing, ready to receive the breakfast. And uh, there wasn't any, not even any money to go buy food. So Mueller prayed, Dear Father, we thank Thee Because that's how they talked back then. We thank thee for what thou art going to give us to eat. And there was a knock at the door. The baker stood there and said, Mr. Mueller, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow, I felt you didn't have bread for breakfast and the Lord wanted me to send you some, so I got up at 2 a.m. and baked some fresh bread and have brought it. Mr. Mueller thanked the baker and no sooner had he left when there was a second knock at the door. It was the milkman. And he announced that his milk cart had broken down right in front of the orphanage and he would like to give the children his cans of fresh milk so he could empty his wagon and repair it. That's one story of many in the life of George Mueller of when he had a need and he prayed, he didn't ask people for money or supplies and God supplied. A lot of people have concluded that George Mueller was a man who had the gift of faith. If you read his writings, he will deny that. He said he knows that there's a gift of faith But he said there's also the grace of faith. Some people have the gift of faith by the bestowal of the spirit. All believers have the grace of faith. And he said how he would long if people would just experience the provision of God by turning to him in their need and praying that he would supply. So I want to leave it there and I'll quote him at the end. And we're going to hear a story here in just a minute, but not before we get to the widow. Elijah could not stay at the brook Cherith for long, and in verse 8, the word of the Lord came to him a second time and said, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there there. Gathering sticks. If we focus on this next point, we we need to see that God is preparing someone very unlikely to meet the needs of Elijah for the remainder of the famine. It's not a wealthy patron. It's not somebody who has stockpiles of food. It's not a king. It's not even a fellow Christian. It is one of the poorest widows in a foreign country, actually in enemy territory, the home region of Queen Jezebel. This is an amazing thing that God is doing. And as we see what happens with this widow, I want you to think about something for a moment that God is more likely to use the poor and insignificant to display his mighty power and provision than he is to use the wealthy and the self-assured. Now, that doesn't mean that poor people are better. It just means that so often God in his providence, God in his sovereignty over the lives of people chooses to reveal himself through those who have nothing so that it will be absolutely apparent that he is the living God, and he is the unfailing provider. And that's what happens in this story. As Elijah goes, as you read down through the text, you see that he sees this woman gathering sticks outside of the gates of the city of Zarephath. And she's out there doing this because she's about to prepare the last meal of the remaining food she has for herself and her son. When Elijah goes to her. He initially asks for a a cup of water. It's interesting in the text where it says he gets there, verse 10, and behold, a widow is there gathering sticks. We're put down in the story for a minute and Elijah comes to the gates and it's like he's taken this journey, which by the way, the text doesn't mention what was about a hundred miles from Cherith to Zarephath in a time of famine. The writer of 1 Kings gives us no indication of what that journey was like or how God supplied for Elijah on the way. But Elijah is just, he's delighted. The behold is like, whoa, there's the widow. After all that journey, she's right there. She doesn't know it yet. She doesn't know what God's about to do. But as God reveals to Elijah what's happening, a plan takes place. And once again, the word And the promise are given to this woman. Elijah asked her first in a very polite way. The text even could be rendered a little more politely. Would you please give me just a little bit of water? And the customs of the day necessitated that somebody would do this, especially for a visitor. And so the woman paused in her stick gathering to go do that. And on the way, Elijah said, oh, and would you please bring me just a little morsel of bread? And she turns around. And what's interesting in the text is what she says. If you look at verse 12, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing. Right, and it's interesting that as she ends, the last word is, die. Her plan is to go and bake whatever's left of her, her flour and her oil, so that she can make a cake that she and her son can eat in this time of famine that has escaped Israel and is now affecting the entire regions around it. God's word, of judgment on his people has ramifications on those outside too. And as Elijah gets there, the woman literally says in the Hebrew, alive your God is, but for me and my son, we will die. Right? She has some understanding that his God, Elijah's God, is the living God. But she's not yet experienced in how to relate to him. And that's why Elijah has sent, God has sent Elijah there to win this woman's heart and to show God's provision of his word and promise of the daily bread and of how God multiplies resources and sweeps in people from everywhere into his plan. The glory of God is that he issues the command to this woman who he had prepared, who he had commanded to care for Elijah. And her response is to respond with faith. You know, how would it seem for a man to come up when you're about to cook a meal, your last meal, and to tell you, no, make, make something for me first? Then make something for yourself. But he gives this promise. For the flour jar will never be empty and the oil jar will never be empty until my word, until the rains once again come. The, the promise that goes to her is not the promise that her pantry will be full and never run out, that her larder will never be, be empty. The promise is that that jar of flour and that container of oil will never be empty. Spurgeon once said that he thinks this was God's providence in life of this woman. When you're in a famine and everybody's hungry and they can smell bread being baked and you keep baking it, they're gonna come. He said he thinks God spared the life of this woman by giving her what she needed, not for what her heart may have wanted at the time. And this is how God works for us. His promise is never in some prosperity gospel way that you pray and you get everything you could ever want. Praise God, he does not work that way. It wouldn't be good for us, but praise God that in a time of emptiness and famine, a widow, one of the most vulnerable people in the entirety of society, would have had something to depend on that she could not only eat for herself and her son, but share with this man of God, who overbred and water a meager meal, but with great joy as the words and the promises of God were shared. <laughs> a little feast with great love is better than a table full with contention. Right? The Proverbs teach us these truths, But as we come to this and recognize what we can learn from the widow, I think it's this, the Lord doesn't need anything from us. He owns all resources. And considering that we're heading into the Jehovah Jireh offering next week, I want you to bear that in mind. The Lord owns everything and he doesn't need anything from us. He's not hindered in a famine. And even in a land dominated by death and demons, he can create food from nothing. Who is your God? Is it this God? Is it Yahweh, the living God? Is it Jesus Christ who is to us all things? He delights, even though he doesn't need us, to sweep people up into his plans And he gives us the privilege to experience his provision through any sacrifice that we make. If there's any lesson that we can learn this month, it's that we often fall short of experiencing the provision of God, but the reward of faith is the experience of God, our unfailing provider. We're going to pause right now. I'll come back in just a minute to read one more quote again from George Mueller. But we're going to watch just for the next few minutes a conversation that takes place, that took place this week, between Pastor Sam and Scott and Jane Alcala. Let's listen to their testimony of God's unfailing provision.
1: Well, Scott and Jane, thanks for uh, taking a few minutes uh, to talk about this great story of what God uh, has done in your life and Uh, How he's shown himself faithful, and a few weeks ago, uh, Scott, uh, I got to hear a testimony as you were sharing your story with our men's group about how God really revealed Himself in the season of Jehovah Jehovah Jireh that we have here at West Park, and what that meant to you. So, uh, a little bit, just tell tell me a little bit again about that story of what God did.
2: All right, so. Uh, In the fall of 1998, I left my full-time job as a software developer uh, to become a contract programmer, so pretty much a free agent. Uh, My first contract was supposed to be in Chattanooga. Uh, We were a young family. We weren't thrilled with the idea of uh, me working in Chattanooga, Uh, but the plan was for me to uh, Drive there, stay during the week with a, an ex coworker, worker uh, and then come home on the weekends. Mm-hmm. Um, the day before I was to begin this job, uh, it was a Sunday night and I remember uh, Jane and the kids getting ready to go to church. Uh, they, they left for church and I was going to continue packing up the truck and drive to Chattanooga that night. Mm-hmm. And before I was able to leave, I got a phone call from the company that said, uh, we've changed our mind, uh, we don't need you anymore. And I remember thinking, I may have said it out loud when, with no one else there, but Lord, you must really have something special in mind for me because I feel like you've pulled the rug out from underneath me <laughs> and I just am waiting to hit.
3: The emphasis on the Jehovah Jireh, we had talked about and we're praying about, um, you know, how much we wanted to give. And right. um, God gave us a number that we felt like, okay, this is what we're supposed to give. And I know it was, it was, you know, a process. And um, sure. several weeks before it yeah. actually came about. And so we had this number in mind. And then when um, the week of the offering actually came, right. we still, had, you know, Scott was like, are we still, what do you think? Are we still going to give right. this number? <laughs> <laughs> right, things have changed. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I remember asking her, do we even have
3: <laughs>
2: that amount? And she said, um, we do, but it's mm-hmm. all we have.
1: All oh, you had, literally all in the had, checkbook. All we had in yes. our checkbook Yes. Uh,
2: by that time. And on the Jehovah Jireh Offering Day, I remember we filed out row by row and came down the aisle. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and I remember going up to the chest and we had the envelope in our hand together and we dropped it in and we said, Lord, we trust you. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, And then I don't know if it was then the very next day or a couple of days later in that week. But I got a, a call from that company I had interviewed with and they were going to offer me a position. And I remember kneeling down on the floor and putting my head on the couch wow. and weeping.
1: Wow.
2: Um, not only had not had to take a job in Chattanooga or Nashville or someplace far away. This new company was three miles from our house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and God took our little bit of faithful act and showed himself very faithful and as, as Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides, yeah. he yeah. certainly provided for us.
1: Amen. That story, when I heard you share that testimony, uh, Scott, so touched me. I, I, we're talking many years ago and uh, I remember that first Jehovah Jireh, uh, offering. I had no knowledge of uh, what God was doing with you all at that time. But what has that meant in your life in regard to your your walk with the Lord, your understanding of the Lord? What's it done for you uh, over the years?
2: Well, this was certainly a turning point for me uh, in in faith, in being able to trust God, mm-hmm. and especially with finances. Yeah. Um, I, I have never felt uh, any hesitation mm-hmm. since that point uh, when I'm prompted to, to give, either spontaneously or for a special offering, mm-hmm. never any hesitation that um, we won't be provided
3: for. As a Christian, we learn these verses, you know, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and yes. Romans eight twenty eight, 28, right. and um, God gives us the opportunity to live those out through our finances. So every year when the Jehovah Jireh offering comes, it gets kind of emotional for us.
1: Oh, it's, it's
3: very special.
1: Right. It's, it's, it's just
3: that, that reminder that God does provide for everything. Right.
1: It's not just history, it's living. Yes. And yeah. the Lord gave you something and showed Himself to you in a way that's guided your whole life and uh, it's part of your story. And I want to thank you for sharing that today, because when I heard you share, Scott, and thanks so much, Jane, for adding even another dimension here today. It's just uh, so tied in with this concept of we really can trust God, yes. <laughs> and He is the Lord who provides.
0: I'm so thankful for Scott and Jane and their story. And really, the moral of that is, you know, not to give all that you have in your checkbook. But if God prompts you to be generous, you can trust him. And what they have learned is that God never fails. I I celebrate the God of that story, the God who never fails his people and who grows us through these seasons of steps of faith that we take to trust him more. I'll conclude today with one of the final words of George Mueller, a man of great faith who prayed for impossibilities and saw impossible things happen at God's response. And he once wrote, my dear Christian reader, will you not try this way? Will you not know for yourself the preciousness and the happiness of this way of casting all your cares and burdens and necessities upon God. This way is as open to you as to me. Everyone is invited and commanded to trust in the Lord, to trust in him with all his heart, and to cast his burden upon him, and to call upon him in the day of trouble. Will you not do this, my dear brethren in Christ?" I long that you may do so. I desire that you may taste the sweetness of that that state of heart in which, while surrounded by difficulties and necessities, you can yet be at peace, because you know that the living God, your Father in heaven, cares for you. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you and we express before you now our our need of you. It's it's easy to say in a moment at the end of a sermon, we need you, God. Yet I, I ask that you would help us to talk to you in our times of need and depend upon you in those times of need and to find you again and again because of all your son has done for us, that you are our father, and we will never be separated from you and you will care for us with unfailing provision. I pray that you would work that faith and confidence in us, Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen.